HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at HearstRanch.com. Season two of Meet and Three is almost here. We're kicking off with a show all about football. I am excited. So much fun. <laughs> we'll tell you how to master the tailgating scene with help from some Atlanta chefs. The sky's the limit when it comes to tailgating. Yeah, do something that you, you can pull off without stressing yourself too much. Then we'll look at what's good and bad about players' diets, whether they're an NFL star or just made the JV team at their high school. And that's when I was told the first time, well, just take them to McDonald's and feed them feed Big Macs and milkshakes. There's a greater percentage of guys that have a, a, a clear focus on what they're putting in their body. You know, in SEC school, people are fans, but we also have to realize that they're kids. They're 18 to 22, 23-year-olds. Subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when Season 2 drops. Hello, this is Lisa Held coming to you live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, and you're listening to The Farm Report, a Heritage Radio Network show about the people, processes, and policies that shape how food is produced today. So today we're going to be diving into the logistics of local food uh, with two farm-to-city innovators. I've got Paul Auerd, farmer and founder of Hudson Valley Harvest here, and Wenjie Yang, the founder of Local Roots NYC. Welcome, Paul and Wenjay. Hi. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much for being here. So um, I really want to get to our conversation. Before we dive in, I'm just going to do one quick thing. Um, it's farm bill season, and this piece of legislation is going to affect how we grow food and eat for a very long time. So I want to keep acknowledging that uh, every week for now. Um, and actually, today, I want to mention something came up that is directly related to our conversation yesterday. Um, 43 members of the House, led by Representative Shelley Pingree, sent a letter to the leadership on the Farm Bill Conference Committee urging them to include a new program called the Local Agriculture Market Program, um, which is being referred to as LAMP because everything in Washington has an acronym <laughs> in the final Farm Bill. Um, so the biggest thing that LAMP would do is strengthen two existing popular local food programs, the value-added producer grants, which help farmers process their food um, into higher-value products like cheese and kraut, 
um, and then the Farmer's Market Local Food Promotion Program. So it's totally unclear right now whether LAMP has a chance of getting into the final farm bill. Um, all of this is kind of up in the air, but it's something to watch out for. Um, and I'm curious, have either of you had any experience with those programs before, the value-added producer grants or the farmer's market promotion? No, we haven't. No. Uh, value-added, uh, we opened a wash and chop facility about two years ago mm. uh, that processed local farm uh, produce and vegetables. Uh, but that was done with the, through state programs, not in federal. Mm. But um, you have basically been directly involved in the process of creating value-added products. Uh, yes. Yeah. From, from the start of Hudson Valley Harvest in 2011, we started predominantly as a frozen food company and shelf-stable. Um, and then we added fresh-cut produce in, um, in a standalone company two years ago. And um, I- I'm curious, was that... Um, did you do it that way because those value-added products are like a really good way for farmers to um, make more money? It was. It was improved margins for the farmers, and it was really market-led for us. A lot of our customers uh, had given us tremendous feedback that there was an opportunity in the marketplace for convenient fresh as opposed to frozen or shelf-stable, which has certain stigma attached and limitations as far as retail use. But, um, you know, really longtime partners like Fresh Direct had expressed and identified a real need in the marketplace for fresh cut produce in season. So we were able, and for farmers, it's not only improved margins, but it's the ability for for them to monetize their entire crop. Mm. So, you know, kale that might have leaf spot or something on it that isn't perfect for retail is then available for, you know, fresh cut or frozen or somewhere down the value chain, which I think makes a huge difference when it... uh, when you regard it in the entirety of a, of a farm and, and the diversity that it provides, not just retail-ready crops, but uh, having an outlet for crops that can be processed or value-added is tremendously important to the bottom line. Got it. And I think it's also, um, from a customer standpoint, if we're trying to get customers to eat seasonally and local all year round, to have things like canned tomatoes that are you know, processed and preserved at its peak of its flavor and nutrition – that's a great way to get people to keep supporting local farms, even in the winter time. Yeah. There's no reason anyone should be eating a tomato in New York City from South America <laughs> ever. It's not going to taste good. Right. So by having these products, I think it's a great way to actually keep people motivated and excited about local farms. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, so we'll just keep an eye on um, that. There's obviously a lot going on in, uh, with the farm bill that, and that's a tiny, tiny, tiny piece, but those programs are tiny in the scope of the farm bill, but then they end up having a really big impact on a lot of small farmers. Um, so, um, Paul, let's start with, um, your experience as a grower. Can you talk a little bit about your experience as a farmer and how that informed, um, the creation of Hudson Valley Harvest? Sure. I grew up farming in Massachusetts, uh, Diversified operations, livestock, and produce. Um, left, went to college, worked in the city for a while, and in 2004 moved to New Paltz in Ulster County, um, farming livestock, mixed livestock and produce operations. So we did 10 to 15 acres of uh, mixed field vegetables and uh, 70 acres of pasture-raised livestock. So 60 to 70 cattle, uh, pasture-raised pork, a lot of poultry. So pasture-raised chickens, ducks, and turkeys. Um, Predominantly direct-to-consumer, so on-stand, farm, on-stand farmer's markets, uh, on-farm farmer stands, rather. 
uh, farmers markets down towards the city, uh, mm-hmm. not Manhattan or Brooklyn, but Westchester, Rockland County, Hudson County, New Jersey, Bergen County, New Jersey. And that was all direct-to-consumer farmers markets or CSAs. And that model was great. But with livestock, is a little more lead time. Um, you know, for grass-fed beef, you talk about like a nine-month gestation and 20 to 24 months till market-ready pigs. You have, you know, three months, three weeks, and three days for gestation and another, you know, nine months for market-ready and poultry as well. So it was a longer lead time. Um, and there's a tighter network of growers. There's only a certain amount of processing facilities. You know, right. slaughterhouses become a bottleneck. Um, so... In that environment, you know, 2008, 2009, in the financial recession, uh, direct market sales were down, especially upstate. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, this kind of conversation began with a lot of the farmers that I worked with who were friends of mine, neighbors, about the disconnect and, and the, the difficulties in accessing the market. So the only solution at that point was direct-to-consumer. It was a lot of travel, right? So instead of a farmer doing what they do best, which is growing or raising food, you're in the truck more often, you're driving down to the city where, you know, where there's more awareness, where there's more of an appetite for local transparent food, where there might be a little more disposable income. And really at that point, the only outlet was to direct consumer sales, farmers market CSAs. Mm-hmm. Um, so we started tossing this idea around myself and three other co-founders, um, a chef, a health nut, and an angel investor about you know, there's really a lot of talented men and women up in the valley growing incredible products. There's an increasing awareness down this, you know, down in the city and increasingly outside of the city and the suburbs. Um, but there's a real disconnect for market access. And mm-hmm. the Hudson Valley Harvest, the genesis of it was really how do we provide access? How do we provide access for eaters to get a better, better food? Um, what they want, be able to select food with full transparency that aligns with their beliefs and ethics. Um, and for the farmers, how do we? increase access for them to new markets not just direct to consumer markets but to rediscover regional wholesale to explore value added so when we started like i said earlier we started predominantly as a frozen food company and as a shelf stable company thinking that you know anybody can sell a fresh tomato in, mm. in august it's they speak for themselves the flavor is incredible but really like when was saying a tie into that is how do you get them to eat local year-round and support so farmers can work on extending the growing season through crop storage and hoop houses and and you know how do you rediscover what our ancestors knew and and really make the most of our resources in that window 12 months out of the year and that has to include you know storage crops it has to include frozen and shelf stable yeah and you said that in like i think 2008 2009 when you were getting started one of the things that um, prompted this was direct market sales were down. Like, do you have a sense of why that was happening? And either of you, like, it, was that something that was happening where maybe there was this moment where farmers markets were really up and everybody was excited about them and and that changed? Or Do you mean specifically 2009? N- no, just sort of, you know, I, I mean... I, I mean, in general, I think it was more of a good thing. Farmers markets were, tr- I mean, tremendously transformative. They gave... Farmers, great margins, right, and the ability to connect with consumers. It's really a rewarding, a rewarding experience. I mean, having done farmers markets for a good number of years, you, you really connect with your customers. They, they trust you. They invite you in. It's a great response every week. And it's not just, you know, you have those boom weeks during the summer where it's beautiful and everyone's outside, but you have really diehard customers show up every week in the driving rain in October to support you when you have brassicas and root vegetables and, and winter, winter crops. Um, and that's a tremendous outlet, but... I think the proliferation of farmers markets, right, on every corner and increasing every day to increase the size to have more vendors, it started cannibalizing sales. Mm. Um, I think also as that kind of validated the movement that people wanted to know where their food was coming from, 
new outlets like home box meals, Blue Apron and Plated and stuff started and that gave people a different outlet and became, you know, increased competition. And I think for farmers, they found, you know, this great market with great margins, but uh, to usually push and grow beyond that, it kind of cannibalizes their sales and spreads them a little too thin with having to go into other, you know, tier markets that maybe have markets too often and too frequency or too close to proximity to other markets. Yeah, I think there's this... Um you know, this kind of uh, disruption or um, between providing convenience to consumers so that it's easier for them to purchase the local food and it creating a long-term negative effect. Because in New York City, we are so... uh, We really rely on things being convenient for us because our lives or our schedules are so busy. But when you have a farmer's market or a CSA in every single neighborhood... And, um, you know, like it makes it so that those markets, the income or the the purchases get dispersed between all those farmers markets and CSAs um, so that if a farmer is at one location, he's not going to make as much much money now that there's two locations in that neighborhood. Um, So that's kind of like a battle that I think about a lot with the work that we do at Local Roots is how do you make food convenient for people so that they want to purchase it and it's easy for them. But so it's not more work for us or more work for our farmers or is dispersing um, the local food dollar between X amount of farmers. Um, And also, you know, like not. uh, Anyway, I can go in this conversation later, but like, you know, (laughs) I think every market, it's it's not the same, you know, like every farmer at every market's not the same. Not every farmer at a at a farmer's market is organic or has the same kind of like post handling practices, you know? So I think, um, the more markets we have, it's great for convenience, but also creates, I think some confusion and dilution in this local sustainability movement. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I, this is like just a, a sort of a random observation, but I had this conversation last week with a farmer that kind of blew my mind about selling at farmer's markets. Um, She was a very small farm um, in Orange County, New York. And she said one thing that is a challenge for them about farmer's markets is that they have to bring like double the amount of what they're going to sell because no one will stop at your table if it looks like you don't have a ton of stuff. It has to look good. Yeah. And and it's so funny because I, it blew my mind. I was like, wait, what? You have to bring double and make it look all full. And then I thought about my own behavior and I was like, you're right. When you're wa- like, I could see that when you're walking through the market, you're like, oh, why don't they have them? You know, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I need to correct that behavior because that's bad for the farmer. But you, you I had never even thought about that aspect. I think it's funny because there's um, listening to Paul speak about this. There's so much uh, logistical and back end conversations and things that happen to get food to people that no one ever realizes. I think. Um, the local food system is a beautiful, beautiful movement, but I think it gets romanticized. Yeah. Um, so there's things like, okay, so like you're saying to have a bountiful farmer's market stand, you're actually spending a lot of money bringing product down that you might not sell to make it look nice. Right. Um, but because that is making someone else, a consumer feel really happy and excited, you know, (laughs) and have this feel good, uh, emotion when they go there. And it's the same as, you know, um, when we're talking about making sure that our farmers are growing things in hoop houses and, you know, um, they have products for the winter and springtime. Well, like, you know, to get a bunch of kale on someone's table in March 
we're talking to farmers now or, mm. you know, like two months ago about planning for this. You know, it's like there's so much conversation that happens just to get like one bunch of kale on a table, um, which I think is just, I think, uh, important to share with people um, because that's what makes local food, I think, it's a challenge, but also makes it so beautiful. There's so much collaborative effort um, and conversation that has to happen to make it work. Yeah. Well, and you've created local roots um, in response to some of those challenges you saw. Um, can you do you want to talk a little bit about the challenges that led to the idea for local roots and how your model solves for those? Sure. So um, I found in Local Roots NYC in 2011 also. So we're kind of twinsies. twinsies. Wait, which, which ones did you guys uh, get established, you know? I think it was July, just in time for Hurricane Irene and Tropical Storm Lee. Okay, so we're actually in April because I, you know, created my business in April. We launched in June, just in time for the hurricane. <laughs> it was very interesting to have a business the first year as a 26-year-old and have to deal with a hurricane. Um, but yeah, so I found a local roots because I wanted to make local food more convenient and accessible, not just for consumers, but also for their farmers. Um, I realized that on the consumer end, you know, as New Yorkers, it's challenging to one commit to a six month CSA season. People will travel. Um, it's a lot of financial equipment ahead of time. Um, a lot of CSAs were only providing vegetables and it was a large portion size, and for New Yorkers, you know, we have smaller kitchens than our upstate, you know, um, neighbors do. We also go out to eat pretty often, you know, like I'd say like maybe about half the week we're going out to eat. Um, and so we wanted to provide a solution to that. We also realized that um, as me, myself, as a CSA member, I picked up in a church, which, you know, is a nice experience. But it felt like I couldn't really meet my neighbors and talk to people. And mm -hmm. um, so I wanted to find a solution for that. So... Um, all those reasons on the consumer end, there's issue of time commitment, financial commitment, the experience being, um, a little sterile and, um, portion sizes being too big and people complaining about, I'm getting like way too many beets and cabbage. Um, and on the farmer side, you can think about <laughs> that. Um, uh, you know, CSAs are, were founded. I mean, originally it started in Japan to support um, milk producers, but in America it started as a vegetable, supporting vegetable farmers. But there are so many farmers out there that, like, um, you know, livestock people, there's, you know, making cheese, there's bread makers, people that are working really hard feeding us really good food in a local food system that also would like the support of a weekly commitment of New York City consumers. Um, so we wanted to make sure that all producers could get that support through a CSA system. We also wanted to make sure that, um, you know, like these farmers weren't having to answer customer service emails on their computers. Um, they didn't have to worry about getting the customers themselves. You know, like um, I think a lot of times uh, that that marketing aspect isn't really what farmers sign on to when they want to farm. So those are some of the issues. So essentially, Local Roots NYC connects New Yorkers with local produce that's always fresh, always local within two hours of New York City. Uh, we have a revolutionized or modernized CSA model that people can pick up uh, at neighborhood bars, cafes, or get home delivery throughout Brooklyn and Manhattan and Queens. 
Our time commitments are three-month seasonal commitments where you prepay on our website. We have markets all year round, so that also means in the winter and springtime, you're also getting local food. We are a one-stop shop, so you get veggies, fruit, meat, eggs, cheese, anything that is made or produced in New York City. It's always natural, so organic, veggies, or all-natural meats, uh, and no antibiotics. And, um, yeah, we make sure that it's a fun experience. It's integrated in your social life. If you're traveling, you can put your order on hold. We give you recipe cards. We want to make sure that everything, every challenge you face is answered through local roots. <laughs> that was a long answer. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, there's a <laughs> lot. There, there's a lot going on there. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, and, and so you're, Wenjie, you're mostly selling directly to consumers you're connecting a farm to the per, you know person eating that food in in brooklyn um and then paul you're mostly doing wholesale right correct when yeah. we do a little direct to consumer out of the warehouse of local pickups but for mostly it's three sales channels it's retailers like whole foods and and park slope food co-op Depp in new york campbell cheese and grocery here in brooklyn um fresh direct has been an amazing partner for the last five plus years mm. um Tons of restaurants from, you know, Michelin star restaurants in the city to small diners and stuff upstate and then institutions and c- corporate kitchens. So uh, New School was a transformative early customer for us seven years ago mm. um, and uh, corporate customers like Google and Citigroup. And- yeah. And there's a lot of talk in the local food space right now, I think, about institutions, institutional buying and getting, you know, sort of scaling up uh, local food by getting into more institutions. Can you talk a little bit about how... Get how hard it was getting into those places, and yeah, they could be like a little bit of a white whale where you can wreck, <laughs> wreck the ship and drown everyone. But uh, we were lucky early on. New School made a commitment to they wanted to you know allocate a certain portion of the budget and spend towards local and transparent um, vendors regionally. Uh, Compass, the the meal service provider, you know, was on board, and we started and pioneered a program seven years ago with them. That's been transformative and has since grown to 20 plus compass schools throughout uh new york and parts of connecticut massachusetts wow so it's been great for us it's fantastic because it complements the um you know an inherent inherent uh limitation with the growing season um which offsets the school year which you know goes back to our agricultural traditions of you know kids staying home working on the farm and, and leaving for school when things are winding down so there's a natural balance that helps support local year-round with institutional accounts. So with the new school, we looked into more frozen uh, bulk and shelf-stable um, and grains and, and dried beans and, and things to extend the season and really allow them to bring local in year-round. So it was a harder lift at first, but I think it's paid dividends long-term with really supporting the regional economy. So we say to farmers that might be growing winter squash for us, uh, they're growing fresh for retail outlets, they're growing, and at the same time, they're picking and packing they're sorting out for processing and we're doing you know now uh like i said we had started a wash and chop one of our co-founders sam Ullman, who's a chef locally um up in ulster had started you know solidly identified the demand of some of the customers and really kind of spoke to his passion of food and um you know farm support and we launched this fresh uh fresh cut wash and chop so the the cube butternut squash and stuff Mm. that is going into institutions has been you know institution led this right. is what we need. This is where you can compete. And this is where it can be labor-saving um, or it can be value-added. It's a different value prop than just just local. So it's pretty pretty exciting. And they were willing to – I would imagine that your prices are higher than if they were just buying from, you know, wherever they're uh, – 
Most often, yes. Yeah. Yep. So, and but they were willing to take on that extra cost. I think they they had the, the difficult conversation early on, which is if we want us a more a different food system, if we want one that's sustainable, if we want one that we can stand behind the environmental practices, um, living wages, uh, you know, the carbon footprint, that that's going to cost more. It comes at a premium. Mm -hmm. And if we really want to affect change, we need to budget, plan on it. And, you know, they allocated a percentage of the spend and resources with a commitment that, you know, we want to make this happen in a real way, which is so different. Like what I was saying earlier, it ties into a real, it's a, it's a community and it requires collaboration and planning. So when you say that you want to be at 5%, two years out, three years out, you can have farmers grow that. It's not, it's not ever a supply problem. It's typically a demand or a reshaping of demand problem. Mm -hmm. And I think where the new school and other institutions have led, and Google's been a tremendous supporter as well, has been, you know, this is what's important to us. We know that's going to cost. And there might not be, I mean, we have our catalog on a given week, we'll have 2,000 different products. Um, you know, all of them local from 70, 80 plus local farms. But not all of them will work for a menu, for a price point. But there's something in that collaboration, whether it's a discovery, um, that will work and does resonate with the consumer and is approachable and it becomes uh, something that's reliable every week and forecastable. And that's when I think change follows. Yeah. Um, and Wenjay, I know that um, you are also doing a little bit of institutional um, sales at this point. Um, I know because you're working with my brother. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Jeff. Jeff, <laughs> um, Jeff, Jeff. Yeah. Do you do you want to um, just talk a little bit about how why you decided to go in that direction when you, you have the CSA model and how has it changed or um, local roots and allowed you to grow? Yeah. Um, you know, our institutional partnership was um, pretty random. Um, it, I'm very, very grateful to NYU Lying on Health for um, being such advocates of local food. So um, we currently have a partnership where we provide the chefs at NYU Lying on Health with um, a weekly list of products we're bringing them. So they're not telling us what they want. We're telling them what's in season. So we're bringing them about six kinds of local produce every single week, and they're creating a menu based off of that. They've never recreated a menu once in the past year and a half. It was just really amazing. The food's wonderful. It's delicious. Wow. And they have a whole farm table menu every Friday at their main campus hospital. Um, that is a tremendous support to us. Um, we didn't actually – it was never really um, – something planned out we didn't have to go through this you know like three or five year process of talking to hospitals which is really great we had um we were growing our csa locations at nyu langone health their campus from one site to three sites and the number of customers that they had promised us um, we didn't reach that number so i really wanted to make sure that our farmers were being taken care of and that their food was going somewhere so I reached out to um, Jenna Agins, which who she leads the whole sustainability department at NYU, um, and I just asked her, "Is there any way you can talk to the chefs at NYU Langone Health to possibly purchase the food that was not purchased by CSA members?" And magically, within <laughs> a month, your brother is like a crazy hard worker and magician. Yeah. He got this um, market set up and. It's um, it's been really wonderful because it's the easiest thing for us. All we have to do is tell them what we're bringing. We bring it to them. You know, it's really easy operations. It is really special that 
a healthcare institution cares so much about local food that they will have such an innovative um, system. I mean, even some of like the, uh, even all the restaurants in New York City, you'll ever, it's really rare to find a restaurant who will just take food from a farmer instead of the chef telling you, I want 10 pounds of miniature tiny, you know, carrots and yeah. miniature eggplant, you know, so... It's, it's been really great. And I really hope that we can grow that. Um, I'm really jealous that you guys at uh, Hudson Valley have uh, so many institutional purchases because it, you know, like um, I obviously fully support home chefs. We are a revolution of um, home chefs in New York City, but institutions have such large buying power that it is such an impact uh, for the local food system. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, all right, so we've got lots of other topics to uh, cover, but we're going to take a short break um, here from a sponsor, and then we'll be back to continue talking about local food. Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. All right, we're back. This is Lisa Held. You're listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio. I'm here with Paul Alward from Hudson Valley Harvest and Wen Jae Ying from Local Roots NYC. Um, so I want to start the second part of our discussion with a really exciting topic, trucking. <laughs> I, I really love the like nitty-gritty uh, logistics of getting good food from farmers to people. And one thing that comes up over and over and over when I talk to farmers about how they're selling, how much money they're making, you know, the markets, they're just, it always comes up like trucking. Just the, so why, why it's why the worst. Trucking, trucking, why is trucking last mile is the worst thing. Well, so, it's the, yeah, it's a, I think it's, it's the toughest lift for everyone. It's uh, why can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, it's everything you think of. It's I mean, people hate traffic. They hate. I mean, what's the worst part? Most people work day is their commute, right? So for us, we commute into the city, and just to be able to get in the city and drive around all day and deliver stuff. Mm. And I think double, you know, double park parking tickets, potholes, flat tires, tolls, breakdowns, engine codes, you name it. It's just everything that goes along with that. And it's really, you know, I think, I think any kind of logistics are hard. Trucking's difficult. It's a 
but when you add food into the mix, it's highly perishable, and, it, and each food needs to maintain its own temperature. Right? 38 degrees is, is great for this vegetable. It wilts this other vegetable. Mm. Um, you know, frozen needs to stay frozen. Shelf-stable needs to stay shelf-stable. So those are logistics of something that's highly perishable and delicate. You know, it's exceptionally difficult to get raspberries that are picked ripe, and I think that's the aspect of local food is it's picked for flavor and picked ready for consumption, not for transport. So we're right. not growing tomatoes that are being shipped you know, 2,000 miles across the country. They're being picked with the idea they're ripe and they're going to be eaten within the next 48 hours. So they're inherently more delicate and mm-hmm. fragile. Um, so combining all that and from a lot of different vendors, I mean, we work with 70, 80 different vendors in a week. That's 70 or 80 small businesses that, like, when I left upstate this morning, there were torrential downpours. That's going to make harvest really difficult. Mm. It's going to crack tomatoes. It's going to make getting in the fields difficult. Um, it's even going to make cardboard boxes soggy, soggy so that if you're stacking things like flats of raspberries, those boxes are going to soggy. The raspberries are going to get bruised. Then the consumer is going to complain. Then you have to deal with customer service emails and it's this whole line of like absolutely complications. Yeah. And regional agriculture tends to be less packaging intensive, right? It's, it's, you know, the packaging buy, it eats into a lot of farmers profits. You try to, you know, I think everybody in this business is respectful of the environmental impact and carbon footprint. So, um, and it is going less of a distance, but it's far more vulnerable in that distance. Right. So the last mile is always the most challenging part of the equation. Can, can one of you guys explain that? I feel like that term gets thrown around a lot, but in case people who are listening don't really know what that means, the last mile, the idea of the last mile. Yeah, I was just going to say that because last mile is, I think, I think there's two last miles. There's one from the farm to the city, and then there's within the city. Mm-hmm. Because we work with farms trying to deliver to our warehouse um, in Clinton Hill across from the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And even just to get people to deliver to one spot is near impossible. Um, and then to get a farmer to, or even a third-party distributor for us to deliver within New York City between Manhattan, Midtown, like that is even harder. Um, so I think that all the reasons you just said, Paul, is... Uh, really, like, the not interesting main challenge of local food, you know. Uh, yeah, there's nothing sexy about it. It's just potholes yeah. and truck yeah. stuff and, that, that and, you have to figure out because yeah. that's how it gets to people. And right? we used to actually, so our mushroom farmer, when he first started in New York City, um, he couldn't get people in Pennsylvania to drive within New York City for him. So, and he was getting all his great um, accounts, you know, 11 Madison Park, like, all his high-end restaurants, so we actually had to have, he hired one of our staff in New York City, meet their mushroom truck at the edge of New York City, and then they'd hand off the van to do deliveries within New York City because no one in Pennsylvania wanted to come to New York City and actually do deliveries because it was terrifying to them, you know? Right. This is, you think about this is farmland where it's Amish country, so you actually see like horse and carriage, that's like the traffic. And then you come to New York City where everyone's like half the time pissed off um, <laughs> or, you know, you're stuck sitting on a block for half an hour. Or one time we there was a parade happening and we literally was we were stuck in traffic for six hours because there was a parade happening. The route should have taken an hour. So there's all of these things. And it's not like New York City supports small businesses, you know, like it's not like they're giving us, you know, um, special passes to double parking places. Um, so you're one, not only getting parking tickets, you essentially lose money when you do delivery, uh, let alone like, you know, try to make money. But, uh, yeah, it's, 
everything's horrible about delivering. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I mean, you're, you're figuring it out though. Like, are there things that you've figured it out, figured out, make it easier? I think scale as we, we've mm-hmm. grown, you know, another component for us, proteins are really important. So all our hooved animals, beef, pork, lamb, and goat all go through one USDA slaughterhouse family owned up in uh, Canaan, New York, Hilltown pork with U.S. animal welfare approved and USDA slaughterhouse, unbelievable facility, wonderful family. But the logistics to arrange for different farmers and, and growers to, you know, have the kill dates for the animals to show up, ready to be slaughtered and processed, and then unique aging for different products. You know, beef might get a 14-day age. You might be sending bellies out to smoke for bacon, and that's a different pickup. So that's really onerous when you're small. Mm. Um, and when we started out, making the logistics work were far more challenging. When you get to a certain scale and, and you grow, then the routine and the schedule becomes makes things easier. You know, when you think about what the food system we're up against, you know, the size of U.S. food in Cisco, it's like the drop-off in distribution is incredible. You're talking about billions of dollars in sales and then really no players in the middle and then a couple people pick up trucks. It's like the drop-off is exponential. So it's, they're really efficient and great. At, the food system is incredible at getting reliable, consistent supply in that, you know, the long-term health benefits or the environmental impact are questionable, but that supply is nearly inexhaustible. People usually get it every single day, you know, next day delivery. Um, so when you make the switch to seasonal and local, it has to come with a switch, an accompanying switch in mindset with that there's different limitations. And logistics is one of the biggest hurdles to overcome. Right. Yeah, and we've, um, we've had a great partnership with the Brooklyn Grange Rooftop Farm. They are located across the street from us. So we're able to have one of our vegetable providers harvest things in the morning and literally drive half a mile to us to drop it off. That's the easiest last mile. So that's <laughs> great. Um, but then also we have found a third-party distributor called Brooklyn Packers. They're friends of ours, and they're the ones um, who are delivering our produce within New York City, which is really beneficial. Mm. Um, I'm a huge supporter of young farmers also because um, – or just not – not not young specifically age-wise, but just new to the game where um, they're able to think about the difference between, hey, like uh, if I'm delivering my produce in New York City, what are the cost benefits of that also? you know, um, So that's really helpful is when there's people that are thinking about uh, the price comparisons between bringing food to the New York, New York City versus not. And when you say like the cost benefit, so you're talking about like the benefit of working with something like local roots where you're taking on the trucking. Is that- um, I think the cost, well, it's for us, it's between farmers who will refuse to deliver to New York city. Mm. Even if we tell them we're going to pay you X amount of money every single week with weekly customers all year round. It's still really hard to find farmers like that, especially mm. if you think about, we're also requiring them to be organic, you know, all these different other things. Um, it's amazing how many farmers won't take that deal. Mm. Um, but if, you know, if we can tell someone, hey, like, you're going to have a weekly customer base with local roots. All you have to do is deliver to our warehouse, and we will handle all the other logistics. You don't have to set up a farmer's market. You don't have to, like, find your own customers. Um, those are the farmers that we are looking for. Right. Well, and I want to maybe just, um, with both of you, talk a little bit more about the economics of all of this. So I think all of us would agree that it's really hard to make money as a small farmer um, in in and around New York and pretty much everywhere. Um, but so 
and you guys are sort of doing this, like acting as a, like, let's say benevolent middleman, right? Like getting the, taking the food from the farmer to the uh, customer. And so that's really adding a link. Does that reduce the amount of money that then gets back to the farmer? No, I think it's it's because they're never uh, it's not never full capacity utilization. They have mm. more than they can grow the ability to monetize their entire crop. I mean, the best margins are going to be with their direct to consumer sales, so farmers markets. You know, CSAs are an amazing model because they help with cash flow. Right, they give you the money as a farmer early in the season when all your money is going into seed and land and labor and, and all that work before you start reaping any. It's a, it's a beautiful model, and it's always been very complimentary just from its cash flow benefits. Right. But I think for anyone, as you scale the operation a little bit and look to, to wholesale, wholesale markets, typically if you can get access and not everyone can, um, it's pretty onerous and it's pretty binary where it's turned on and turned off in certain regions very quickly as crops rotate. And if you're not plugged into that, network and you don't you don't grow at a certain volume you it's restricted access so for us we look to you know improve their financial sustainability by allowing them to grow more clear more inventory and monetize things that otherwise they couldn't they wouldn't sell so damaged crops that might end up in our uh, frozen or our shelf stable and not damage where it's unsafe or the flavor's not there just aesthetically blemished or uh, what's ugly vegetables now mm-hmm. um, so i think that that's a tremendous service and a help um, you know, I think we're, we're a very mission-driven company, um, and it's both we believe it's the right thing to do, and, and, and for true sustainability, it needs to be a viable career choice for the kids and for the farms to stay in business, and, and the model needs to change, um, because if, we're, if you're going to be a local food company, you need local farms, and it's, and it's been a difficult period. Yeah. Yeah, and... Um like I just said, I, th- I think uh, there is a difference between when people are delivering to local roots, they don't have to spend the money on, you know, doing all the customer acquisition for themselves. They aren't on the computers answering questions for customer service. All they have to do is deliver to us. They don't have to set up a farm stand or, you know, uh, which is or stand at that farm stand, or stand all day. Or stand at the farm stand, yeah, and that's like super labor intensive. So the farmers that we work with, again, every farm is different, but the farms we work with like the system because they're able to really just focus on what they love doing, which is farming, and growing that farm and growing their company and thinking about their long-term plan. Um, I think also, um, you know, our farmers we know are not going to sell us things that they're going to make the most profit at the farmer's market. They're always going to put there are farmers markets priority if they have farmers markets, not all of them do. And we understand that um, because, and we're not going to like, you know, throw a hissy fit. We want our farmers to be uh, making as much profit as they can. So if they're saying we can't sell you this special crop because we have to have it for our own farm stand, then that's great. You should sell it there. Um, But yeah, I think there's lots of different factors when you think about, is someone making more money through one model or the other? And, uh, you know, similar to Hudson Valley Harvest, we also have um, a share you can purchase, which is imperfect produce. Mm. So, you know, we are also an outlet for things like broccoli leaves or, you know, like wobbly carrots. So it's providing farms with uh, another option for things that they might not easily be able to sell or they might not even realize. You know, we tell our farmers all the time, I'll walk the fields with them, like, can you please sell us those soup potato leaves? We will sell them for you, even if you feel like there isn't a consumer base for it. 
Yeah. No, that's really cool. And like you said, I mean, like NYU, you're just, you know, you're selling them whatever is available. And and I mean, that's something that they might not have had access to. Yeah, exactly. And we're not going to push products on consumers that we know they're not going to be happy with. (laughs) So there is a really happy medium. You know, we spend a lot of time thinking what's beneficial for the farmer, but also the consumer. But, you know, someone like NYU is great because if, um, you know, if I know that maybe our members won't want turnips again um, in the winter time, NYU is great because, you know, like they're all master chefs. Like your brother went to, he worked with some of the best chefs in the, in the yeah. world, you know, so he knows exactly how to make turnips taste delicious for people. Yeah. If only I could get better at cooking turnips. You, you really need to hang out with Jeff, your brother, yeah, because brother. he can make anything taste wonderful uh, <laughs> i'll ask him um one one thing i kind of want to get in quickly before uh we finish up is um paul and i were talking about this a little before um you both have been so successful at getting a lot of local food to uh eaters in new york city and i think i guess part of me thinks is it possible to do what you've done because of New York City's unique characteristics. So, you know, we have this incredible density of people and um, in a very tight space. And then the farms are not far. I mean, I grew up, you know, 50 miles away in the middle of all these farms. And Yeah, you grew up in, like, um, the Blackfoot region, yeah, right? exactly. In Warwick. Yeah, and so it's like, you know, in a lot of other cities, maybe you have some density, but then it, there's a lot of sprawl and then, you know, the farms are much further away and, and also there's just not as many people in the city. I, I wonder if you can, if you have any thoughts about just does, does New York particularly lend itself to these kinds of models? Would it be harder to do something like this elsewhere? You know, I always, <laughs> I always feel like it's, it would be easier to do this anywhere else. Well, everything else I is mean, harder in d- New York. D- depending <laughs> on like what your growing region is. But like anything else, if you can make it in New York City, you can make it anywhere. Because let's just list some of the challenges we have. Okay, so not only are we talking about the last mile of potholes, tickets, double parking, Midtown being horrible to deliver to. Um, then we're also talking about New Yorkers have almost no kitchen space. Yeah. Half the people use their fridge to just store, like, I don't know, Red Bulls or... And their ovens, too. And their store ovens for, like, shoes or something, you know? <laughs> so, like, no one really cooks. We have some of the world's best restaurants here, so it's very tempting to go out to eat or get takeout. Um, also, we have crazy schedules. You know, how many of us actually have a consistent schedule? How many of us are always traveling for work or have last-minute meetings? Um, so there's all these things that make getting consumers to cook local food really hard and we have so many options right like how can you know the difference between one option and the other when marketing is uh very confusing to people Mm. i mean you can email me and i'll tell you um (laughs) what's wrong with a lot of uh, companies out there with their sourcing oh, who practices are saying they're selling local yeah, food? who are saying mm. there's they yeah but a lot of people lie about that stuff but mm. yeah i think in my in my opinion new york city is so incredibly hard and um but as i'm sure you know paul is we have the best farmland right like we're very lucky yeah, the food that mm. comes in this area is so delicious and Despite their limitations in the winter and springtime, um, we have a really good variety of food that we can grow here. 
We do, and I think it's and like you were saying, it's customer led. It's awareness, and I think that that's changed and been changing for a long time. Each book, each documentary, each food recall, the awareness grows, and I think those tend to be led in urban areas. Mm-hmm. So New York's a very frustrating and challenging market, but it's also very rewarding in that it's, it's extreme. It's, tremendous density and consumer awareness and that's grown and I think it's spread and I don't, I don't think this is a, this is not a short-term trend I think people look at the past 40 years and the consolidation in food and how, how it's made people sick how it's it's you know her harm the environment and that that's unsustainable and that rediscovering these ways and building the networks relationships and collaborations that give people a better alternative you know probably start city centric but grow from there. Because I think at the end of the day, no matter where you live, whether Des Moines or Brooklyn, you, you want to be nourished, you want to be cared for, you want to feel healthy and good about yourself, and you want to provide the same for your family. And it's eating is a, it's a taste experience, right? It's got to taste good to be more flavorful. And I think for all those reasons, local trumps what we have. It's just typically logistics and price that end up being right now the main barriers but as we scale i believe we'll grow out of it mm-hmm. right and yeah i i do want to give a shout out to everyone who is supporting the local food system like you know we know sometimes it could be a little harder but you guys are making such a difference you're actually making it so local farmers and producers can survive and have a, a livelihood that they love doing and um you know like half of the half of our markets that we run or actually the majority of our markets that we have are run by volunteers we have we are a very very small company, and the reason why we're ever able to grow is because we have these New Yorkers who are so passionate about food that they want to lend their talents and be supporters of us. So um, yeah, shout out to everyone who's making a difference just by either volunteering their time or spending their food dollars on local food. Well, that is an awesome place to end. <laughs> we are out of time. Um, thank you, Paul and Wenjay, for being here. Um, I really appreciate you guys coming to Bushwick. Um, where can people find you if they want to stay up on what you're doing? Um, uh, <laughs> your, your website? No idea. Sure, the website. Hudson Valley Har- HV-Harvest.com. Not like where you're going to be in, in yeah. 20 minutes. Uh, <laughs> heading back north on, the, on 87. <laughs> Uh, yeah, HudsonValleyHarvest.com. Perfect. Yeah, you can find me in Cobble Hill <laughs> slash any other neighborhood we have markets in. Um, you can follow us at localrootsnyc.com. You can order there. We have markets all year round. Uh, we are specifically also looking for um, other businesses who want to host our markets. That'd be ro- really wonderful. Um, follow us on Instagram at localrootsnyc. You can see pictures of food that people make, um, farms we work with, and hear about events we have coming up, like a farm trip to a local orchard. Fun. (laughs) All right. Thank you all so much for listening to The Farm Report on Heritage Radio Network. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, rate, and share the podcast. Tune in next Wednesday. I'm going to be talking to a legendary grass-fed beef farmer. See you then. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. 
Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.